You know, it's just not a, a binary issue between whether gas or coal is going to win out here. It's the entire decarbonization process of energy is moving in, in this one direction. Hello and welcome back to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, I'm pleased to welcome Ira Joseph to the show to talk about natural gas. Ira is the global head of generating fuels and electric power pricing at S&P Global Platts. He talks with my colleague, Nikos Safos, about the current state of natural gas markets. They take a dive into the drivers of natural gas prices, European supply issues, and energy security. They look at U.S. production levels and the future of investment. They also look at the future of global gas as it competes not only with coal, but increasingly with renewables. And here's Nikos to lead the discussion. Well, Ira, thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, Let me start at the top. What is happening to gas prices? You know, a little bit over a year ago, we had historic lows. Companies were shutting in capacity. Exporters from the United States were canceling cargoes. And now it seems we're on the totally other extreme where we're breaking records every day. We're seeing this in Europe. Seasonally, we're seeing it in Asia. U.S. gas prices have come up. Carbon prices are up. Power prices are up. You know, there's just so many different factors that are contributing to this. Why don't you maybe start by unpacking some of the forces that are really leading to this price increase? Sure thing. Thanks again for, for having me on. Nikos, I would say the two are definitely related. You can't have one without the other. When COVID struck and, and demand essentially collapsed, you had a collapse happen in a lot of things. Of course, we all remember there were all these supply chain issues and other aspects of our lives that immediately affected us in terms of food and, and other items. And I think the effect that it had sort of on the energy industry and energy production, shall we say, sort of lagged that effect. And I think we're sort of seeing not the end point of it now, but now sort of the peak reaction of that, where you know we immediately had a price fall last year because demand was down, supply was still high. It really took a long time for supply to come down during the COVID period. Of course, we had those famous negative oil prices. People worried about negative gas prices. But then the whole thing sort of, you know, it was a bit of a slingshot effect and came around where I think the gas industry in particular is very, very used to, Nikos, you know this better as well as I do, that supply comes in in large chunks and then demand tends to catch up. In this case, we had a very unique situation where demand came back kind of instantaneously And this is sort of one of those rare situations where supply is having trouble sort of catching up or keeping up with what's going on. Now, that's at a very broad, high level where we can get into some of the nuances here of the different, you know, gas producers and LNG producers and all, all the types of supply that are out there. But I think that essentially what's happened when you look at actual demand itself, it's not that strong. And certainly now at these higher prices, we're not going to have strong demand. And if anything, I'm kind of wondering why demand isn't even weaker at this point. So. Everything seems to be out of balance, you know, no pun intended with the balances. So it's kind of like, you know, if you're like, you know, swishing around water or something and, you know, in in a swimming pool and and there's a lot of waves and then the whole thing eventually settles again. I still think we're kind of in that sort of period where the seas are are kind of rough and they're still haven't settled yet. And I'm not sure they're going to settle for for quite a while, frankly, because we could have, you know, a reaction back in the other direction, you know, just, just as easily because of all the mismatches we have particularly on a global basis with gas. Regional issues we can go into, you know, one by one, but on a global basis, the way things are moving around, it's really been quite a wild ride up and down. 
let me dig in on the supply side. And obviously, there's a big chapter called Gazprom, and I want to get to that in a second, because that, there's just been a lot of chatter in the market about what's happening with Gazprom. But maybe let's start with LNG first. Utilization has been an issue. It was an issue last year. What are we seeing in terms of the ability of producers to produce at maximum capacity? Sort of what's holding them back? What are the issues that you're seeing there? What are the the major countries where that's a well, that, that's a problem? Right. So I think there are three key pillars for gas supply in general, and we'll go in reverse order here because one is the U.S. What's happening with U.S. gas production? Two, what's happening with Russian gas production? And three is LNG. And as you know, we've we've bantered back and forth on Twitter. The utilization rate has been very, very low. And I think what we've learned is a couple of things about the market, particularly within the gas market, the LNG market here, is one, that the legacy producers, you know, Matt, whether they're really old, like Malaysia or Indonesia, or whether they're like, you know, recently old, like a Trinidad or a Nigeria, that the, that the sort of perpetuity of, of utilizing production at a very, very high level has to be called in question in ways that it wasn't before. Because when you look at the big producers, there's, there's not really a problem. Qatar's producing max, U.S. is producing as much as it can. Australia, you know, while it does have maintenance periods, is producing, and Russia is producing very strong. So the big four seem to be producing, but they're also new-ish producers, with obviously parts of Australia and parts of Qatar being set aside. It's sort of these other producers out there that sort of the, these mid-range producers. Egypt is coming back, but then. Nigeria, Trinidad, who have had problems, Norway, certainly, who had to shut down, where I think the assumptions we used to make about utilization of capacity back in the day, you know, we would assume 85, 90% utilization capacity. Now, you know, we're struggling even to hit 70% utilization capacity. So in the same way people, to make this analogous to renewals, talk about how they're intermittency problems, but you need a lot of capacity to produce a baseload amount of supply. I think we have to start thinking about LNG the same way, where we can't worry about some sort of stated capacity number being 100%, because it seems like we're going to need 120 or 130% of that to get where we're going to need to, which, of course, is very good for, you know, LNG projects out there that, you know, have been aspiring to, you know, go FID. And I think that this is actually a really positive sign for them if they can work out some of the contractual issues. But in terms of, of security of supply and making sure that there's enough supply in the market, this is kind of welcome for you know potential new, new suppliers out there because some of the older suppliers, it doesn't really look like unless something turns around can really be relied on you know at the same level they were in the past for different reasons. Some of them are upstream reasons. We can't really go in. It's too much to go into the details of each one, but there's different a lot of different reasons out there. Super. No, and I want to come back to the what it means for future investment uh, a little bit later in the discussion. But let me go then to pillar two, gas pump. Uh, just a lot of debate in the market. Is this upstream issues in Russia? Is this refilling storage in Russia? Is it tricks that like gas from is playing because of Nord Stream 2? Is it, you know, well, you Europeans wanted a hub-based market and this is what you get. And it turns out gas from has market power. You know, I mean, how do you weigh all these different factors that seem to be sort of thrown out there to explain the thing that we do know, which is that Russia is not pumping as much as it could or as much as we think it, it should be given the price environment. That's sort of the operating assumption that everyone is making. Right. So, so I think the important distinction here is the, between Russian production and Russian exports. Because if you look at Russian production up until this Uruguay incident, which you know happened recently, Russia is producing more at this time of year and this year than they've ever produced before. So the issue up until 
you know, recent incidents wasn't total Russian production. The issue was where the gas was going. Was it going into domestic storage? Was there some massive change happening in Russian gas consumption? Why wasn't as much going to Europe? You know, all of these things were kind of a mystery. And then, you know, you kind of have to throw in the, the market intrigue that seems to have surfaced around Nord Stream 2, you know, and what all that means. I mean, I guess the, the clear point is, is that Russian exports are kind of at the lower end of what they normally are for this time of year. Then you've had, you know, less UK production, obviously, less Dutch production and, and simply not enough LNG in the market. So all of those things have kind of gone hand in hand to kind of get us where we are today. Now, the, the, the politics of Nord Stream 2, you know, are, are kind of, you know, very difficult to unpack. And, you know, we could, we could almost talk about it for hours. So but the thing was, is that Nord Stream 2 became a huge political football at some point. And we all started talking about it and it became this big thing and probably a bigger thing than maybe it should have been in the context of, of the larger market. But the sort of unintended consequence of that was that it became a big thing. And so on the one side, it became a big thing because it was tied to Ukraine, but now it's become a big thing because it hasn't started yet and, and prices sort of reflect a need for more gas in the market. Now, you know, can Russia provide that gas to the market? You know, do they have enough production? They seem to be producing a lot of gas, but their ability or their willingness to move it into the market seems to be less than, than it has in the past. But Nico says, you know, because you've been following this a long time, Russia historically has kind of been a very sort of passive gas marketer. You know, they had contracts, nominate the gas, the gas would flow. They weren't very active in the market in the way that one could think about, you know, th people being active or, you know, trying to do something in, in the market. It was a pretty sort of conservative state business. And then, you know, it seems to have changed and buyers are getting the gas that they're nominating, but it doesn't seem to be enough to, to meet the needs of the market right now. And so you can't really sort of blame this air quotes I'm using right now in Russia or blame this on LNG or blame this on one thing or another. It's just that there's not enough supply in the market right now and inventories have suffered. And you see that everywhere, particularly in Europe, which has not only become a barometer of gas storage for Europe, but it's kind of become it for the entire world. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting point. And, and I do want to come to the third pillar, which is U.S. production. But maybe let's do one or two more rounds on, on Europe. I mean, sure. that interplay between Europe and Asia. I mean, one of the things that it seems to me that over the last 10 years, a lot of European energy security has been, let's be able to get LNG. Right, that when things go bad, we will always have LNG. And now we find ourselves that things are bad and you actually can't really get the LNG. And we have interactions in the gas market that are relatively new. You know, I mean, we've been at this business of, of liquidity and spot markets for, for a long time. But at this scale, it seems a little bit, a little bit new. What are we learning about that interaction between Europe and Asia and also? You know, what does it mean for a continent that has based so much of its energy security strategy on basically the flexibility of LNG, which doesn't seem to be there at this moment? Well, I mean, I think we've learned certainly that the European and the Asian gas markets are, are more tied together than ever before. I mean, when you look at TTF prices, you look at JKM prices, they're very much trading within a range of each other to suggest that there's a push and pull between those two markets. So I think that for sure you know, we have. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I think we've learned, and this again ties back to the Russia issue, is that the more Europe has become in need of LNG in order to balance, the more that the, the, the state of what Russian gas production and Russian gas exports are doing are not just affecting Europe, but are affecting the entire world. So 
the more that you see, you know, Spain, UK, even though, you know, no Russian gas goes to Spain, it's still affecting the overall global balance now in ways that we hadn't before. And that's because Europe has lost maybe, you know, two of its, you know, five pillars of, of gas supply, which is, you know, very limited UK production at this point, very limited swing or baseload production from the Netherlands as well. And so that sort of has left at this point two, maybe three, if you include Algeria and four, Norway, two forms of supply to, to, to fill the void, which is Russian gas supply and, of course, LNG. So it gets into a situation where two years ago, LNG was pushing into Europe because it needed storage and it even ended up filling large amounts of Ukrainian storage, you know, pushing all that gas into the market. Now we have the opposite, again, reflecting how important, you know, European gas storage is for the market. But as we've seen also historically, Asia is willing to pay a premium over Europe for gas. Now, in the future, you know, that's something that I'm thinking about a lot, because if Europe becomes just as reliant on LNG as Asia, what's the deal with the premium? Like, why, why is it there? What's the purpose of it? And are we going to have a different pricing relationship in the future? I, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, in the case of Asia, they need to have LNG, you know, because there simply is no pipeline gas, whereas in Europe, there is options for pipeline gas. And then there's LNG that's sort of in the mix as well, which does suggest that a premium on Asian prices, you know, on JKM prices will, will exist. But for now, the two are clearly trading, you know, very tightly together. And if the U.S. had more LNG export capacity, Henry Hub probably would be higher. But because it's limited right now to the capacity that it has, Henry Hub prices at least have somewhat detached from what's happened in the global market, which, which would be in this case TTF and JKM. Before I go to Henry Hub, let me do one more wrinkle when we think about the structure of pricing, uh, and that's carbon. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, we've seen CO two prices in Europe continue an incredible rise. You know, sometimes we have discussions: is it gas that's driving the CO two price? The CO two price that's driving gas? Or are people buying CO two certificates because they can't get gas? They have to burn coal. You know, h- how do you think about that interaction now? between a, a really robust CO2 price now, if we're talking about upwards of 50, 60 euros on a sustained basis. You know, how, how does that affect our thinking about the structure of gas pricing in Europe and by extension, of course, you know, spot market in Asia? Well, I think, you know, when I read about how the market is being covered, the gas fundamentals seems to be getting the, you know, the headline banner here for driving up carbon, driving up coal, driving up everything. And I honestly, I'm, I'm not entirely sure of that myself. I mean, I think carbon price and, and the EU has you know, stated it very clearly because they could issue more supply if they really wanted to, if they wanted to bring down the carbon price. But they, they seem to be happy with this because it seems to be meaning from a policy perspective, I think, some of the energy transition goals that have sort of been set out there. So obviously, I, I think the EU from a policy perspective doesn't want gas to be $19 per million BTU uh, because it's not what any not what anybody i think wants from a policy perspective but i think a higher ish carbon price is something that i think will help aid some of the energy transition goals and some of the more aggressive ones that individual member countries want to engage in so they all are sort of working together but you know at this point we've kind of blown through the you know the coal switching price even and now we're into oil switching at this point so it's gone beyond the sort of traditional metrics and parameters that we we had traditionally talked about, at least in power generation, the type of price band that we would have in the relationship between coal 
and gas. And, and for that matter, coal markets are much, much more balanced than gas markets. The high carbon price is definitely something that isn't as reflective in, in coal markets as it is in gas markets. In gas markets, gas markets seem tight. They are tight. Prices are higher. Carbon prices are higher. Whereas coal markets, there's you know other things going on there where when you look at the global balances, it's not necessarily as tight as we see in gas markets. U.S. Sure. Henry Hobb has been relatively muted for a while now. We've gotten used to a really tight band, not super exciting things happening. Occasionally, you know, we may have a summer, uh, sorry, a winter spike with extreme weather, as we saw earlier in 2021. And now we seem to be on a sort of really robust upward trajectory over the last sort of few weeks. Uh, you know, h- how do you read that? Obviously, a lot of speculation about how that's tied to the oil production in the U.S. and the availability of capital for oil producers. You know, how are you thinking about U.S. gas prices at this point? At this point, so I think. I mean, I think the to me the biggest mystery worldwide is not how much Russian gas is being exported, but why U.S. gas production has not gone up. I mean, we've kind of been in this sort of ninety ninety one BCF a day thing for for quite a while now, and and I mean investors and, and upstream people used to get excited when the thing hit 250. And I, none of us were sure that 250 was was good enough to, you know, to be profitable to, you know, to produce more gas. Now prices are at four and nobody's like blinking an eye. Now the rig count is definitely going up. You know, it's sort of creeping up here and there, but you would have expected with crude where it is, where NGLs where it is, where gas it is, there would have been an absolute skyrocketing rig count at this point. And yet we haven't had it. Now you know, is this some broader commentary about reluctance to invest in fossil fuels upstream? Is it just a lag, you know, because capital markets are, are a little bit behind here and are focused on other things? I'm not entirely sure, but that is what is definitely sort of driving this. I mean, the hurricanes that we had are, are having temporary thing. Storage injections are clearly lower and overall storage levels are clearly below normal and the lower end of the five-year range. But the bigger issue here is to me is upstream and sort of why upstream you know, is not reacting to these these price signals. And, and if it continues to go this way, what we're going to see from prices, because as you rightly point out, you know, it, it's the middle of September. This week, I think, is the lowest week for seasonal gas demand, like in the world, is like this week. And yet we have these prices. You know, what's going to happen? European gas demand between now and the end of December doubles. You know, U.S. gas demand also, you know, goes through the roof. I I don't have the exact number in in my head, but it goes up, let's say, a lot more (laughs) than it is now. So it's I I think there's a huge risk premium, you know, being placed on the market. And it's because people are obviously worried about about storage levels, but they're but they're very, very much worried about why the U.S. market and the upstream is in particular is not reacting to these price signals. Let's uh, talk a little about the the future. I know you and I have talked in the past about how, how frustrating it is that sometimes we take the, the price of the last week and try to extrapolate for the next 20, 20 years. But obviously, just a lot of discussion in the market about investment and future supply. You know, we had a big year in 2018, a huge year in 2019 in terms of LNG final investment decisions. Then COVID happened. It was a really sort of low year, and then the Qataris made a big move in the beginning of 2021. I mean, you know, obviously, if you're a gas or prospective gas supplier and you look at these prices, you have to be thinking, this is my my signal. On the other hand, if you read what the world is trying to do, 
when you think about the demand for gas in 20 years, you know, you may be getting a different signal. You know, how are you thinking about the impact that these prices are having at the appetite to invest and to finance sort of new supply? So I think the thing that keeps I keep scratching my, my brain about is that, you know, for the past five, seven, eight, pick the number of years, we've had relatively low, calm to low gas prices in the U.S., in Europe, even in Asia. Of course, occasionally with the weather, it spiked. But in general, they've been kind of on the weakish side. And through that entire period, there was demand growth, but nothing at the rate that I expected. I mean, I expected more demand growth. So the, the broader point here is if if demand growth was not strong during what was arguably a relatively weak inflation-adjusted period for gas prices, how is it going to grow at these prices? Now, obviously, well, not maybe not obviously, and I think most people would, would concur that prices aren't going to stay this high and that we'll get down into a band of 6 to $9 for JKM, you know, a dollar below that for TTF and a dollar and a half below that for Henry Hub, going somewhere into that range. And the question then becomes is, you know, are those prices in an appropriate place to create or spur demand growth. Because obviously there's a lot of potential supply out there from all these aspiring US projects, from the Qatari expansion, Russian expansion. There are suppliers out there who wanna add gas to the market. The question is, is, is will there be sort of a, an aligned investment in, in building up gas demand? And that, that you know apart from what's going on right now in these two seconds, that's always been the big question mark for me is that, is there going to be the same type of investment support to burn gas as there is to produce gas? And up until this COVID thing happened, the answer to that, I think, was kind of no. And so there was a lot of focus, you know, on producing more, more pipeline gas or more LNG or, or whatever. But the, the demand side was really lagging. And then as renewables came in and, and renewables has grown, it has eaten away at these growth prospects for gas. So we can talk all day and night about whether gas is going to be a bridge and whether that bridge is long or whether it's narrow or whether it's higher, whether it's low. But at the end of the day, every year that more solar panels and wind turbines are produced, it really cuts into gas de- the gas demand outlook going forward. And that, that to me is, is the most difficult question for the gas industry going forward is how are you going to create additional demand for all the supply you aspire to produce? And that you know, obviously, right now, when it almost seems kind of crazy to talk about that, given where prices are right now, but things do settle back down and the overheating period will end. And if anything, you know, demand will be affected and this could even affect demand growth more because, you know, there's got to be buyers out there going, well, we can't handle these kind of prices longer term. And if governments of the world have a choice out there, do we want to, from a policy perspective, support, you know, importing natural gas or do we want to, from a policy perspective, support, you know, additional renewables and battery storage growth. And that's like a very real decision that a lot of governments around the world, particularly ones that aren't as, you know, financially strong as other ones are are going to have to make going forward. And that's, and this, you know, moments like this make that decision even more difficult and, and makes the stakes even larger than before. Well, it seems that, you know, in the past, we were always trying to figure out, is there a pricing sweet spot that enables supply but also allows serious coal to gas switching in Asia. That's always been sort of the holy grail of the gas right. industry. But it seems, as you're describing, that we're kind of moving beyond that coal to gas switching paradigm as the only barometer for demand creation because you have alternatives, right? I mean, obviously, right. if you could get a pricing point that displaced coal in Asia, that would be a huge boon to demand. But 
at the same time, renewables are coming in and they're adding a new a new variable into the mix. Right. Yeah. So I would say in the past, I sort of half jokingly said, you know, gas suppliers should go buy out long term coal contracts around the world and replace it with gas. But like, it's not that simple anymore as a way to sort of speed up the retirement of coal, you know, in places like Asia that and, and gas could come in. But it's sort of not that simple anymore because renewables you know, is a real alternative here. And from a commercial perspective, you know, quite competitive. And so, you know, it's just not a, a binary issue between whether gas or coal is going to win out here. It's the entire decarbonization process of energy is moving in, in this one direction. And it always has. It has for 100 years. It's just a matter of how much it's going to continue to speed up and at what pace it will. We always have to remember something you and I have talked about before is that LNG is really expensive. You know, it's even an expensive form of gas. So you, it's the most expensive form of gas and it's trying to compete in the most price sensitive form of demand, which is power generation. And that is a really, really, really hard needle to thread long-term. If we're talking about, you know, domestic gas in Australia feeding domestic gas plant, okay, or in the US, okay. But when you're talking about moving gas from the US Gulf Coast half, halfway around the world, that's costly. And the cost of that is not gonna go down. And so alternatives arise to that scenario that that will produce the, you know, the incremental gigawatt, you know, of power around the world. Well, Ira, thank you so much for that. You've really helped unpack so much in a brief period of time. And so always, always wonderful to, to speak to you. Thank you. Thanks to Ira for joining us this week. We always appreciate his insights. You can also find Nikos' analysis of natural gas on our website, and you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy, and thanks for listening.